When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, one of my favorite guests, Stephanie Barba Hammer. Make sure you check out her new book, Pretend Plumber. It's a poignant book and it's genuinely funny. Just do a search for Stephanie Hammer, Pretend Plumber. After my conversation with Stephanie about Arya's first POV chapter in A Clash of Kings, I rehearsed my three rules of dragon magic with comic Steve Osborne. Steve, as you may recall, is a stickler for magical rules, and so we will see if these rules hold water with Steve. Finally, a bit of housekeeping. I don't know if you've been keeping up with Andor. If you're like me, you've been somewhat disappointed with Star Wars of late. Andor is maybe the best thing I've seen since Empire Strikes Back. And the season finale just came out, so if you want to binge watch that, and then check us out over at the Lorehounds. I'm going to join the Lorehounds for the season wrap. So check out Andor and then check out the Lorehounds. All right, without any further ado, here is Professor Emerita of UC Riverside and one of my favorite authors, Stephanie Barbe Hammer. Have we done an Aria chapter before you and I? We have not. I think we did a Tyrion. I think we've certainly done Sansa a few times. Oh, did we ever? Yeah, we yeah. got very heavy into Team Sansa. Right. For sure. And now, now we are together again to talk about my favorite character, Arya Stark. Wonderful. I didn't know she was your favorite mm-hmm. character. Oh, absolutely. I'm, so- I'm delighted. And I have to say, as we start go- walking into this chapter, that I, she has become a new favorite for me on the basis of this chapter and on the basis of uh, of what I'm reading of of Clash of Kings, which I'm really enjoying rereading. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let me just ask you: Have you been keeping up with House of the Dragon? I have. How did you find that? Did you have you watched the whole? First I season? have watched the whole thing, and I'm now dipping into the behind the scenes series. Oh, so, okay. so that reaction gives you already a little bit of a sense of of what I'm feeling about the series, and I know there've been some very negative reviews of it. Oh, is that saying, right? Yeah, the New York Times says it's disappointing. Lots and lots of viewers are like, "Oh, it's what is this?" I love it. Yeah, it's, I'm a big fan. Are you? Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Because otherwise, we would spend the whole next hour arguing about that <laughs> when we need to talk about our aria. Yeah, I think it's. Inc- I think it's wonderful. It's very different. Yeah, from what Game would of you Thrones. compare it to? Like, it, it certainly does not. I mean, it occupies the same world as Game of Thrones, but yes. both the tone and the long epic 
time span. What would you compare it to? Well, I think that what I think you've made a wonderful point about the tone. I agree. The tone and the emotional atmosphere and indeed even the physical atmosphere are very different from Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And for me, this series feels more in keeping with the medieval literature that I've had exposure to. Oh, like it's a which... it's a little bit Beowulfy. Interesting. It's a little bit Gawain and the Green Knight, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking not of the new movie, newish movie, but I'm thinking of the text itself. Mm. I'm thinking too of oh gosh, Marie de France and her stories about the Middle Ages, which involve supernatural stuff. She has a wonderful story about a werewolf mm-hmm. in it mm-hmm. in her collection. And that combination of it is a brutal world in many ways. However, there are also very strong senses of loyalty, of Mm -hmm. actual courtliness, Mm -hmm. of actually playing by the rules, that that's still important in this world. Whereas for Game of Thrones, their rules, but... Mm. Yeah, everyone was breaking. It was almost like an outlier to find a character who would play by the, the rules of court, right? Exactly. Whereas the court and, and the whole sense of, of kind of, what do I want to say, of kingship and how kings are supposed to act, all of that seems to me to be taken very seriously in, in House of the Dragon, and I'm I'm enjoying that. There's also some other people have said this. There's a there's a certain Shakespeareanness to the conflict. I was wondering about that. I was thinking every now and again there'll be something that is almost like a Shakespearean misunderstanding or yep. a Shakespearean tragic unfolding of events. Yes. Yeah, it's not that that you didn't you couldn't find those in the previous series. And again, not a flaw in Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is 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 more modern somehow in its its contemporary situations put into this medieval yeah, I think you're right. kind of crazy I think world. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh one more question and then we'll jump into Arya. So, uh do you find yourself more aligned with Rhaenyra's crew? Or with Allison's crew, Team Rhaenyra all the way. <laughs> Even team, though Damon's a bit of a problem, it's like okay, a bit of a problem. He's going to be a tough husband to keep under control, <laughs> particularly when he tries to strangle you when he gets frustrated. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert! Mm-hmm. But uh, I have yeah. thoughts. I have thoughts about Team Black, but um, no, I I don't. It's easy for me to uh, sort of sit on the fence. And judge both sides of the conflict because I feel like every episode you're almost like, oh no, that guy's a monster. That guy's a bigger monster. Oh no, she's yeah. totally a monster. So, I yeah, it's it's a fun boy. It's a fun uh, world to live in. Uh, you know, an, an hour a week. You wouldn't want to live there full time. No, I don't think it's a nice place to visit for an hour. But you absolutely right. wouldn't do the extended tour, and you uh-huh, for sure wouldn't uh-huh. want to take up residence in any of those castles. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, let's talk about Arya. Arya is on the King's Road, and I'll read my little synopsis here in just a second. But um, she gets beaten at one point in this. She does. And it it makes me think this could you know this this could sort of be Martin 
throwing us back into an, an ancient culture. But I'm old enough that I can remember being beaten. I, I wasn't sure. beaten bloody, but you know, it's it's odd to me how how recent some of these changes are, especially with children. Um, yes. Do you remember a, a beating that you suffered as a child? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, beating is a bit of a strong word, well, well, but my parents spanked me. Absolutely. I mean, physical punishment was part of my upbringing. Yeah. I mean, it just was. <laughs> what was what was something that, that is especially memorable to you that that warranted or resulted in a spanking? Well, I remember this. Because my grandmother remembered it and used to talk about it, I think because she found it at once a bit funny, but also unacceptable. She was a <laughs> lovely person. This is my maternal grandmother. Okay. My father had, I was very small. I was maybe four or five. My father had had some kind of surgery, minor, on his foot. Okay. And he had a cane, which I found fascinating as a child. It was right. like, oh, and I wanted to, I played with the cane. Mm-hmm. He, this is a little Aria-esque now that I think about it. <laughs> and my dad told me not to play with the cane and I kept on playing with it. Oh, and so yeah. he spanked me. Right. It was, it was too enticing not to play with the cane. It was just such a neat thing. Yeah. And a little bit, you know, I was, I was into fairy tales. So it, I was maybe thinking it was a sword. It's uh-huh. possible. <laughs> So, but but he said not to play with it, and you did anyway. You, you probably did it in a in a sneaky way, and you got caught. Or yep. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Don't it was play with the cane. <laughs> that is a little bit Arya. All right. Let me read my synopsis. Arya is on the King's Road. Her traveling companions include various prisoners, all headed to the Night's Watch. Leading the group is Yorin, who has disguised her as an orphan boy. Two recruits in particular have taken an interest in Arya's uneven haircut, naming her Lumpy Head and or Lumpy Face. The one named Hot Pie tries to take Needle and is beaten bloody for it. This wins Arya an ally in the recruit named The Bull, but it freaks out Lommy Greenhands. Yorin punishes Arya with a beating of her own, then he tells her that Eddard was meant to be sent to the Wall. It seems that it was Joffrey's idea alone to execute her father. She continues to lean into the disguise, dreams of home, and misses Jon Snow. So, Stephanie Barbie Hammer, uh, I've asked you to come up with an observation and or a question for discussion. What do you bring to the table today? Well, what I'd like to bring first and foremost is question for us to think about in what ways does Martin show us that Arya has changed and evolved mm. from the person that she was in the first book? Hmm. Do you do you mind if I start with some continuity? Absolutely, go for it. Because this might help us with the process of elimination. I noticed that she she still has Sirio Pharrell's advice echoing in her head. Yes. I noticed that, you know, swordplay continues to be part of her identity. You know, she will defend her possession of Needle. Like, the, you you can do anything else. I'm not going to let you take Needle. Um, she continues to love Jon Snow. 
Um, one thing that I've I noticed, and maybe you can help me think through this, was it seems like she prior to this. She was always defining herself over and against her sister, Sansa. Yes. And it seems like now she's got bigger problems. Sansa's, Sansa used to be her biggest problem. And now right. she has actual, you know, <laughs> rapers and poachers in the midst right. that she has to worry about. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a, a maybe that's a big deal. I mean, certainly she's. She's now grieving the loss of her father. That's that's a major event in her life. Maybe that's yes. the biggest one. Maybe I, I undersold. Yeah. I buried the lead. Maybe, but maybe not. Be I. I think your point about about we're moving now into sort of the contrast into what's changed. That in particularly in one of the chapters that you and I discussed, we talked about Sansa versus Arya a yeah, lot. Right. And uh, um, uh, as I remember, Arya spills uh, something on on Sansa's gown. Oh, I think she actually throws something. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this, so the contrast between the sisters is so strong. Yep. And Arya's, I'm not Sansa. Who am I? Yeah. I am not Sansa. And it's so fascinating that Sansa is mentioned only very, very briefly in this chapter. Yeah, interesting. A few pages in when Arya wishes that all of King's Landing would just wash away, that... <laughs> That the the water would rise, mm -hmm. the rush would rise, I'm quoting here, the rush would rise and wash the whole city away. Flea Bottom and the Red Keep and the Great Sept and everything and everyone too, especially Prince Joffrey and his mother. And then she stops. And this is such a wonderful example mm -hmm. of Martin's writing. This fantasy that is itself complicated yeah. And the fantasizer says, no, wait a minute, there's a problem with this fantasy. <laughs> and it is, I'm quoting, but she knew it wouldn't. And anyhow, Sansa was still in the city and would wash away too. Yeah. So she says, oh, I don't want her to wash away. But in an ironic way, Sansa has been washed away. It, because oh. as you just pointed out, Arya who now has a couple of different names. Yeah. <laughs> so important, the renaming that goes on yeah, in Martin's right. books. Has bigger fish to fry than Sansa. So Sansa right. does kind of wash away and is no longer a part of things. So it's interesting to me because I think that there's a sense in which if I'm reading a Sansa chapter, what I'm about to say is absolutely incorrect. But what I'm when I'm reading an Arya chapter, Sansa's the shadow almost functions as a cocoon that that Arya needs to break out of. Mm, yeah, I love and that. From Arya's perspective, she's always lived in Sansa's shadow. Yes, yeah, always. And now, for the very first time, she doesn't. Yeah, uh, Sansa's problems have parallels to Arya's problems, but they are geographically separated. Their problems are significantly different. You know, there's just yes, a host of different problems uh, and complications that they're going to have to figure out. Yeah. And, you know, I love this. I love this thinking because in subsequent chapters, Sansa 
is going to survive by really working feminine identity and feminine identity as uh, prescribed by this very sexist, very patriarchal culture. But she's going to work that identity for all it's worth, because as I pointed out previously, it's kind of all she's got. Mm -hmm. So because she isn't a swords swords person she isn't a genius she's that's what she's got and she's going to work it and here is aria becoming certainly assuming the identity for these other people and perhaps assuming the identity in a different way yeah of a boy I think ergo you're the right. name change ergo the name change yeah for sansa it's almost like these men at court are not chivalrous at least most no. of them are not, but most of them have to pretend to be, right? Right. <laughs> and right. she knows that because she's read the stories, and she so yeah. she's become an expert on what a good knight looks like. And once she figures out that they have to appear in certain situations to be chivalrous, yes. she knows if I lean this way, they have to lean that way. Particularly in public situations uh-huh. where there's where there are a bunch of people present, right? She can use that, <laughs> right? This is what uh, this is what a woman at court has to figure out. Now, Arya, interestingly, is both transformed in social station, right? She used to be highborn, and now Indeed. she's an orphan. Um, li- I mean, literally, she's. <laughs> She's been transformed. And then, of course, physically, she's been made to look like a boy and she's been named a boy. And she yes. and her survival is about leaning into, you know, what a you know, at one point I think Hot Pie thinks that maybe she was a squire. Yes. Right. Yes. So he fascinatingly buys the the boy identity, not, but he yeah. somehow senses that the class identity isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And and so she has to defend herself not by, you know, playing a political game. She has to defend herself literally with, you know, by beating her aggressor, right? She yes. she has to prove herself. It's like this is almost like her first day in in the in the county lockup, right? She's right. she's got to prove that right. she's not to be messed with. That's right. It is. Well, she, of course, has been taken prisoner in a way, and there's some actual prisoners on the scene, mm-hmm. you know, locked mm-hmm. up in the locked up in the wagon. <laughs> so the prison simile is not wrong or, the you know, first, the you know, boy's first day at the tough school. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> sure. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Now here's what here's one difference uh, that I'm noting. Sansa now does not have any adult who has her best interests in mind in the room. Yes, that's true. She has nobody. I mean, she might have people from time to time who like don't want to see her suffer. Um, and of course, Tyrion's on his way to court. Um, and of course, you know, we would trust Tyrion more than we would trust someone else. And, you know, he's not quite sure about the Hound yet, but he doesn't seem to beat her up like the others do. Right, right. Arya at least has Yorin looking out for her. Yeah, right? she does. So, I mean, she is probably more in danger of physical harm, but at least she does have an adult right. in the group that wants her best interests, wants to see her safely to Winterfell. I think that's such a great point about isolation versus support. Mm. And of course she has another ally in the making that we see who we see come forward in this chapter. Yeah. 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 The bull, the bull, the bull (laughs) who of course we later find out is the, the Baratheon bastard Gendry. Right. Um, It's one of those things where it's like, on reread, it's pretty obvious that Martin wanted to drop a few clues to, you know, help you along. I I did not pick up on this at all the first time I read it. Yeah, I don't think I did either. Uh, speaking of, of the kind of joys of re- of rereading, something that I had fun doing, getting ready to talk with you about this chapter, is I went back and looked at chapter one in Game of Thrones, mm, mm-hmm. which is Bran. Right going out for the first time, quote-unquote, with his brothers and father to see the execution. So here he is bonding with his brothers, uh, and it's the same chapter where they find the wolves, the baby right, the pups. that's right. So there is Bran going off with his brothers. And again, this is what I love about Martin, is he's thinking macro and micro. Mm. There's a great parallelism with this chapter, because here's Arya, the baby girl of the family, oop, now a boy, Mm. going Mm. off with the brothers who are going to be the brothers of the wall. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think Yorn all even calls it out, he says. Exactly. That's why she's beaten. Yeah. He, that's what he says you don't fight with your brothers. Uh-huh. You don't do that. And she she doesn't like that idea but she holds her tongue, right? She says she, she does. Know, in her mind she's thinking those are not my brothers. Yeah. But of course the Gendry does become a a, a brother and so does Hot Pie. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the other thing about this that I was really interested in and this, I, I don't. It's hard to know what Martin w- wanted to do with this, but I, it's almost impossible to read this chapter in 2022 and not think about a bit of gender bending. Right? Absolutely. So I'm curious. You've you've recently written a novel that I, I I read and enjoyed called Pretend Plumber. Thank you. I'm and, so glad you liked it. And I remember. Um, that you have a character who almost by accident gets to try on gender fluidity. And it correct me if I'm wrong, but your main character ends up being confused with a friend who is gender fluid. 
who was trans. Yeah, yes. she gets. Yeah, there's a there's again a it's a comedy of errors, pretty much. Right, and then she decides not to correct the misunderstanding because it's an opportunity for her to try that on for size herself. Absolutely, and she's somewhat queer curious, so she figures I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with this and see see where it takes me. And then she. <laughs> She almost feels a little guilty about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes, because she is borrowing she she she's borrowing an identity that belongs to a friend who is much less privileged than she is. <laughs> right. So she feels some uh, and she's right to feel guilty about that. But it's a fascinating journey for her and hopefully for the reader to see this character say, "Well, well, wait a minute. You know what's it What's it like? What are the advantages uh-huh. to being seen and to moving through the world as a boy? So it's almost like Saracene, because of the confusion, can not only try on how it feels, but also see how other people treat her differently. So it's almost Absolutely. like the identity is both internal and it also has a social dimension which, of course, we know that gender does have that performative element, right? Yes. And I wonder if that helps us think a little bit about Arya because she we know that from the previous book that she's almost envious of her brothers who have a different kind of freedom and a different kind of prospects for the future. So this isn't the first time that Martin's introducing this gender questioning that Arya yes, is experiencing. Absolutely. And I think you make a great point that in the past Arya has felt tremendous frustration at being a girl. Right. Well, in a ironic and very dark way, she is now getting her wish to not be a girl. She is getting to be a boy. She's a boy without a penis. Right. But which which causes certain issues in terms of peeing and peeing <laughs> in public. Right. But she does get to be a boy. Yeah. She doesn't choose it. It's not like it, this thing is absolutely forced on her and it's to save yes. her life. You know, Yorn has this idea. The the best way to save this kid's life is for me to cut her hair, call her boy really loudly. And they're going to let me, you know, walk right up to Winterfell with this child hiding in plain sight and Yorn, of course, is not trying to give her a gift, except for just just to save her. Exactly. Yeah. And I've and I think if if you were to ask Arya, would you rather have your father back or have the opportunity to have your hair cut? She's absolutely going to keep her father around, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And yet, because of this, she's forced into a role where she now can act in certain ways that she could never act before. Yeah. And to be honest, it's a role for which she is not unprepared, thanks to Master Serio. And Ned, you know, Ned. And Ned. Yeah. And John. And John, right. Who gave her the sword. Uh And again, let's not get too Freudian with the sword. But still, (laughs) one can think a little bit about that fight with Hot Pie as to who's the the real guy here. Uh Uh Who's the manlier man here? (laughs) And she is. Well, it's interesting. So if she was... A girl in this socially in this if she was a girl socially in this situation, she might have to give up needle just because girls aren't supposed to play with 
sharp objects, right? Exactly, yes. Now she's, because she's a boy socially in this situation, she can keep that thing as long as she can defend herself. Right. As long as she is, as long as the person that's trying to take it away from her isn't bigger and stronger, she can keep it around. And she does. She does keep it around for a long time. Yes, she does. Um, so it's almost like, I mean, I think there is something to be said about the, the sword being an identity marker for her. You know, it connects her to John. It connects her to Winterfell. Yeah. Uh, yes, abs- absolutely. Much, much later when she's in the House of Black and White, she's supposed to kind of cast off her ego, but she hides the sword. Yes. She's I've, not I've... willing to give it up, right? Absolutely. That's a wonderful point. And yeah, it's the... I remember reading that section for the first time and going, I didn't want her to give up the sword. And I'm so glad she doesn't. But yeah, that is, again, mixing metaphors, the bedrock of her identity. I'm actually, you can't see me, but I'm, I'm pretending to hold a sword. It's, (laughs) it's not just masculinity. It's the family. Uh It's her father. It's, it's an identity larger yeah, than just it's herself. A, it is steel that was forged at Winterfell, so it has yeah. the same birthplace as she does. Yes. It was given to her by her favorite brother, um, who I think she has the strongest connection to. Yes, and we see that certainly and, at the end of the chapter. And because Ned finds it and lets her keep it, that initiates her first training with Sirio, right? Correct. So it really is her origin story. I mean, we, we've traveled with her and that sword the same amount of distance. Um, anyway, I, I just point. I just think it's it's uh, it's it's lovely writing. There, there is a couple other little bits of this chapter that um, that I think connect us to the wider story. Um, but I want to know uh, before we get to those, I, is there anything else about Arya in particular? I think the other observation I'm thinking point, you know, we've been talking about swords and points, <laughs> so let's not use the word point for a moment. But the other uh, moment in this text that I think is so wonderful and that shows us sure continuity, but also considerable evolution in terms of the skill set of this person is the actual fight with hot pie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which is again as a writer, I so admire writers who can write action scenes. Action scenes are so hard to write because it's it's all action. It's physical. So how do you use words mm-hmm. to demonstrate and make us feel, make us share what's happening? And the description is just fantastic. Do you mind if I uh, read it? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Arya slid her practice sword from her belt. You can have this one, she told Hot Pie, not wanting to fight. That's just some stick. He rode near and tried to reach over for Needle's hilt. Arya made the stick whistle as she laid the wood across the donkey's hindquarters. The animal hawed and bucked, dumping Hot Pie on the ground. She vaulted off her own donkey and poked him in the gut as he tried to get up and then sat back down with a grunt. She whacked him across the face and his nose and made his nose crack like a branch breaking. Blood, <laughs> blood. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be laughing. It's this is violent, right? <laughs> blood dribbled from his nostrils when Hot Pie began to wail. Arya whirled toward Lommy Greenhands, who was sitting on his donkey, open mouthed. You want some sword too? She yelled, but he didn't. What a 
<laughs> it's great. And I just want to stop for a second because yeah. we both laughed. Yeah. Because there's something again, this is the genius of, of the author. There's something a little three stoogesy about it. <laughs> it is a you know, bit. crack. <laughs> Yeah. And the falling on the ground. And, of course, they're on donkeys, which is also funny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're not on steeds. They're not on stallions. <laughs> they're on donkeys. So, And when Hotby began to wail, he's this big guy who said, I killed somebody. I'm yeah. awful. I'm so bad. And he immediately starts to cry. Yep. Yep. So there's a, there is a little bit of comedy there for sure. Yeah, and it's, you know, the stakes are somewhat lower because we know this is a practice sword. Um, yeah. so it's, it's not like, you know, we saw a horrific interaction that Arya had at the end of the last book. Yes. She ends up killing someone. Um, yes. she's on the run. She's afraid for her life and she ends up stabbing a boy in the stomach and yeah, she it, kills him. She's a murderer. Yeah. It's, it's an abs and she's a little bit, you know, she's certainly feeling guilt about it. Yeah. She doesn't She mentions to, it here. In yeah. This chapter. She doesn't want to tell Yorin that she's done this. But she kind of knows I have something in common with these men that that Yorn dragged out from the black cells. Right. She keeps on looking at the guys and the you know the the three really scary guys. She keeps looking at them, perhaps recognizing a little bit of herself in them. Yeah, I think so. And she's not quite comfortable with that. This is kind of her. She's taken her first steps toward this death religion. Yes, true. Um, she's not. We don't. We don't have her reciting her list yet. But you kind of see the nope. seeds of that. She's she's named Joffrey as sort of the person that's most responsible for Ned's death. Yes. So um, the list is forming. Yeah, the list. Yeah, the list is forming for sure. We have at least one name. Um, a couple other things that I really enjoyed about this, and I'm reminded from time to time even though these chapters are divided by uh, point of view, that you can really reveal a lot about a character from someone else's perspective. Yes. I felt like I'm, I'm reading this first chapter of this book, and I find myself missing Jon Snow. You know, she misses Jon Snow. They haven't seen each other in, you know, 700 pages or whatever. Um but my mind is cast up to the wall, and my mind wonders what's happening with Jon Snow. Even though this is all about Arya and Arya's plight, part of her identity is wrapped up with Jon. And every now and then Martin will do that. He'll, he'll insert a bit of information about a different character that you haven't heard from in a while in someone else's POV chapter. And oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't noticed that, but you're right. He does do that. Because you could get so wrapped up in what's happening on the King's Road that you're not, you know, you, you might lose track of and, and maybe lose investment in what's going on up north of the wall or something. Right. Yes, it's such a clever maneuver. And it's also so fascinating because I think it hooks into the questions that Martin is asking throughout the series and that is, what do we owe others? And what is our relationship with others? Hmm. And what can our relationship with others be in this very violent, corrupt world? <laughs> What's possible? Hmm. And certainly the figure of John keeps on coming in as 
ironically, though he's taken the black and and lives in a very dark world, is this this kind of moment of light because mm. he really genuinely loves Arya and Arya genuinely loves him. That's really it's really a beaut and of course he isn't her real brother. Back to who's my brother. Right. He's not her real brother, but she has real kinship with him. And I think that there is I mean, there's something about her found family along the road. You know, she's lost her family, but Yorn is kind of a stand-in for her father, and she's got a big brother in the bull. And yes. then she's got a couple, you know, mean brothers in Lamy and Hot Pie, and they are specifically called her brothers. Yeah, and then, of course, hiding in that in that cell of the wagon is another brother-slash-father figure-slash-instructor. Hey, you're right. <laughs> we just don't quite I love how he gets inserted mm-hmm. with just kind of in the in that in that panorama of people and wagons. There yeah. he is, Jockin. Mm-hmm. There he is. Right. And then of course that also is, you know, planting the seeds for the House of Black and White. Yes. I wanted to talk a bit about the comet. Yeah, let's do it. One of the things that Martin has done in these early chapters is he's introduced he keeps introducing the comet and i think it tells us a little bit about each person's i don't know interpretation it reveals something about their character absolutely yes so arya here sees the comet and thinks it's a, it's probably what ice looked like when it had ned's blood on it right it's yeah. it's a sword it's a sword it's the sword that beheaded my father and that tells me something about Arya's interior right mm-hmm. it also serves to connect the other characters in the story that you know in, in Maester Crescent has an idea about what the comet might mean and right and he tells us what you know what people are saying on Dragonstone you know mm-hmm. what are the what are the commoners saying and then in the chapter after this we hear the comet propagandized like you know, this is a, a a sign and a portent in honor of Joffrey's name day. Right. And, it's the Lannisters. Yeah, it's yes. the Lannister Red, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So, again, you almost it's almost like a little literary trick to reveal something about the character at the same time unifying these early storylines because they're all looking up at the same cosmic right. event. Right? And seeing something so different, each one of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a Rorschach test. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was really struck by that also. And I want to come back to a point that you made earlier, Anthony, about the continuing importance of Eddard Stark's death, that it really was this traumatic right. experience. No surprise there. So what do we do when we undergo a traumatic experience that we can't really bear to think mm. about directly we displace it in yeah. certain ways right so she makes that scene into the comet and the sword that kills him is the comet and so on right and it'll be interesting to see how she manages that kind of unbearable memory going forward yeah we're told that she cried repeatedly and then we're told that by morning she was all cried out, like there were she had no yes. more tears left. You almost feel at the beginning of the chapter that she's she's steeled herself. She's created this tough exterior 
because now she has to forge ahead. But when we're introduced to the comet at the end of the chapter, we realize it's, it is absolutely still part of how she's experiencing the world, right? Yes, absolutely. She's all cried out, but she's not done with that trauma. Yet. Right. Not at all. What a beautifully written and complicated character. Um, I, yeah, say a little bit more about why she's your favorite. I'm interested. I feel so vexed when I'm rooting for Arya because in so many ways she's on a trajectory to darkness, to death. She's on a trajectory yes. toward either emptying her ego in an interesting way or embracing her ego in an interesting way. I mean, her her story is so brutal, you know. It is. It's very brutal. It, it involves, yeah. you know, it involves sex work in Essos. It involves traveling with the Hound and and him teaching oh, yes. her like what are the best ways to kill a man. You know, that this is kind right. of her, her mentorship right. along the way. Right. And, and she's a little kid. She's nine she's, a she's kid. nine years old, That's I think, right. in this chapter. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> and so I'm always rooting for her. I always want to root yes. her, for her to succeed. And at the same time, there's part of me that thinks the more she she succeeds the more of a, a vengeance monster she becomes. Yeah. And this this brings me to all kinds of complicated feelings about, you know, what I really want for this character. I mean, part of me wants someone to just scoop her up, bring her to Winterfell, and protect her, right? Yes, and yet indeed. that's that that's not a satisfying story. No. <laughs> for her, anyway. No, it isn't, actually. It isn't. So... As you're talking, Anthony, I'm thinking about the many times in history and in the present child soldiers have been used mm, mm. for in terrible wars and in terrible terrorist acts. Mm. Child, you know, kids Arya's age get get used. And she's I feel scared for her always as I read about her and at the same time I have I feel such tremendous admiration for her mm, yeah. because this this exp these sets of experience would lay out most people. <laughs> and she has I'm looking at the words Valyrian steel. Yeah, yeah. She's got, she's the Valyrian steel. She's really really an incredibly strong person. And the reason part of the reason why she's so strong is yeah, because she's Ned's daughter and she's Kat's daughter, right? But yes. part of the reason she's so strong is that she's separated from Ned and she's separated from Kat. You know, she's she's had to deal with tragedy and that this has made her stronger and made her more lovable, right? I, I feel like I, I really I've really come to love her. Oh, I think she's lovable too. I also think as you're talking, you mentioned Jon Snow earlier. The other thing about Arya is from the very beginning, she is an outsider. She's a, the biological child of her yeah. parents, yeah, right. unlike Jon Snow, but she doesn't fit. Yeah, the very first line of this is like, she used to be called Arya Horseface. Right. And that she thought was the worst it could get, <laughs> right? Yeah. But so yeah. she's always been a little bit of that outsider, right? So it's kind of a the the book is in an odd way. The books are in odd way celebrations of outsiders. Yeah, 
because she is the person who doesn't fit she doesn't want she as we've already talked about she doesn't want to be a girl she doesn't want to do girl things so ironically she calls her sword needle which is of course an (laughs) instrument that women use in this world and but she's going to use this is a very different kind of needle to do a very different kind of sewing or unsewing Mm -hmm. in her case and she's always at odds with her surroundings now she's really at odds with her surroundings but b i agree with you because of her parents and also we've been talking a little bit about our own children because of her own qualities that are hers yeah is somehow able to survive all of the things that are happening to her and i think that there's something about aria that reminds us about the plight of children in in martin's world in particular you know we know that varus is using child spies to do dirty oh, that's work that's right. right yeah yeah and and we know you know there's a lot of places in this world where children are not allowed to be children right they, no, they're, they're absolutely not. used to do dirty business and now one of Ned Stark's kids uh who you'd think you know would be well protected and you know have a, have a charmed life now one of these kids is being treated like a lot of other kids are being yes. treated in this world. That's a wonderful way to think about these books. We've been talking a lot about about gender in this conversation, but really the power struggles between children and adults, it, that's, that's really an important issue in all of these books. Right. And I think that it's that's one of the ways that, that sort of makes this world alien to us is that and this was actually true once upon a time in our own world is that a 14 year old could be be a king right yes <laughs> you, you a could, 12 year old could be a king a, a, a little girl could get married off before puberty i mean yeah this is this was the world that uh you know that our own culture kind of discarded right we don't right. in favor of childhood uh we we didn't want <laughs> We didn't want that, right? Um, but in but Martin's world, it's pretty common. It's pretty common to find a kid who has legitimate political problems or legitimate political power, and of course, this also attracts all sorts of different kinds of adults in their orbit, right? Yes. Um, introducing in this chapter, uh, Lamy Greenhands and Hot Pie. And the bull and the three prisoners, which you mentioned, one of which is uh, one of whom is Jack and Hagar, but we not named yet. We also have an intro- introduction to several of Arya's names. She, she's a character with right. with just dozens of names, right? So um, we heard about Arya Horseface before, but now she's called Ari. This is the first time we hear the name Ari. And then, of course, lumpy, both lumpy head and lumpy face are introduced in this chapter. Right. I was really, again, as a writer, so thrilled by Jack and not named yeah. appearing yeah, of course. with these other two. Uh-huh. 
I just thought, now that's a slick way to introduce a quite important uh-huh. character. Um, show differences. I noted that Arya doesn't really get beaten by Yorin in the show. In the show, that I I'm I haven't looked at that this season recently. Yeah, but that that corresponds to what my memory was also. Yeah, yeah. and and hot pies hot pie takes it. <laughs> Hot Pie gets it really badly. I mean, yeah. Arya really, really gets him. Uh, nothing like that happens in the show. Uh, you know, our Hot Pie kind of gets put in his place, but nothing like what we see on the page. And, of course, you know, at that point in the show, we don't absolutely don't want to see a little actress Arya, you know, getting beaten bloody in the woods uh, to teach her a lesson. Right. That's so interesting, Anthony. Do you think that the show, the, the television series holds back a bit from violence at ch- directed against children? It, I think it depends on the kind of violence we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that they wanted to lean into the father figure part of it for Yorin. I see. Like yes. a, another show difference is that in the show, Yorin teaches Arya about like it's, there's a little story invented about his backstory. Like someone uh, killed his brother, and then he created in his mind this revenge fantasy, and that's how he how Arya gets the idea to have a death list. Oh, she gets that from Yorin. Uh-huh. Yorin is really a father figure, and I think it's hard for a modern audience to be happy with a father figure who's going to use corporal punishment. Right. That that's, makes sense. That's my sense mm-hmm. of it. Anyway. I was just wondering because certainly the television show does not hold back from sexual violence against women. That has been well well discussed. Well documented <laughs> and well discussed. But yeah. it's interesting that it holds back in this area. Uh-huh. Mm, uh-huh. Fascinating. Um, yes. And then notable departures. I guess we could say that uh, this group has departed from King's Landing. Um, in fact, Arya in the books will never go back to King's Landing as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Although she will create a death list and a few of the, a few of the people that she wants to kill are in King's Landing. So, Yes, indeed. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. We will. Um, Steph, if people are interested in checking out Pretend Plumber, where would they go? They can go to that big megaplex online that sells a lot of books. They can go to Amazon, uh-huh. or you can order it from your favorite bookseller. Okay, fantastic. And and I also, I, I should mention also, you've got a new poetry book out, City Slicker. I do. Very lacking in any kind of violence. It's a, it's a memoir in, in poems, free verse mostly, about my experiences with the out of doors. I'm a New York. I grew up oh. as, in New York City. Okay. So the out of doors has always been a somewhat exotic place to me. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you have maybe a fraught relationship with the outdoors. Somewhat fraught. But also fun. Okay, good. It depends. Good. All right. Well, I, I'm sure that a number of our listeners will want to check those out. And now, Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. <laughs> All right. So the the other fan theory that I, that I really liked for a while is Arya meets these three gross guys in a cage. Right. Yes, All right. So... 
These guys are Jacken Hagar. He's the nice, handsome one. The mm-hmm. others, the others are Rorge and Biter. And <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, you know, one of them has sharpened yellow teeth. What, yeah. what else yeah. are you going to call him? Right? You sort of lose. You sort of lose being called Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was dug until he started sharpening his yeah. yellow teeth, and then he's like, like when Sting just told everybody he's Sting now. He's like, I'm Biter now. Check these out. Steve, what's the worst you've ever been bit, or the worst you've ever bit someone or something else? Uh, and we're talking not food, <laughs> like like I mean I've bitten forks. <laughs> like you ever do that? You ever like go? Oh, I don't know how to eat today. <laughs> the the fork is like sideways for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just like chomp right down, like miss the food altogether. Um, I'm thinking like um, I don't know, I don't know if 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 this brings to mind anything. If you ever were in a fight, or if an animal ever attacked you, or something like that. No, so like we have, you know, a, we have myriad dogs. Um, one of our more recent puppies, like just, you know, I just was sitting there and and uh, kind of petting him, and then he took a look at my finger and he just started biting on it as hard as he could, and I had to like pry his mouth up because I thought he was just gonna snap it in half. Huh. All right. Yeah. This is Bender. This is Bender. Yeah. <laughs> Uh yeah, so you you think that might be the worst you've ever been bit? Yeah, I mean, it, it, in terms of like, oh, like, I mean, he, if he didn't think to stop, or or if I didn't stop him, it would have could have just snapped it right, you know. Uh-huh. That's so that was definitely because I, I I don't think I get bit often. I was just thinking we just covered Teen Wolf two over at Cocoons mm-hmm. of Horror. That is a werewolf movie that is has no biting. There's <laughs> Not a single no, bite in no. the entire movie. No, no, yeah, they don't biting. No, um, I mean, I guess he does, does he, bite a frisbee at one point. He bites a frisbee in midair. Uh, does he even claw or scratch? No, he gets. He definitely gets. He, he he squeezed the tush, but he wasn't like he scratched at it. No, that's right. He squeezed the tush. He also like really devours those science books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he is. He's uh, taking a bite out of knowledge. It's an odd, it's an odd choice for a movie featuring a werewolf. Um, yeah, like the, the big montage is a studying montage. <laughs> so, uh, post House of the Dragon, we've had a, a lot of discussion about when dragons obey, because of course, you know, you you got Eric's and Luke getting chomped, specifically because mm-hmm. Vagar is not choosing to obey his master, right? So this kind of reminds me of a long discussion we had back when we were covering the original series about the rules of magic. So you you really needed those rules in order for you to kind of invest in a world with magic. Yeah, I mean, because you can, if you have no rules and just magic, you know, magic abounds and it's like, oh, well, you know, this is a tough situation. I wonder how they're going to get out of it. It's like, oh, good thing there's magic. (laughs) So given this discussion... I've come up with three rules about dragon magic, and I want to—I mm. know that you are a um, a stickler when it comes to the rules of magic. I feel like if I can if 
I can get these past you, if I can get your quality control on these three rules, then I feel a lot better about them. Okay. Okay. So, um, this kind of emerged for me when I read this quote by George R. R. Martin, who you may have heard of. But yeah, it, in passing. Yeah. So he he gave this interview. He said, you have to bond with the dragon. There's no way that you can physically intimidate a dragon to obey you. If you just annoy the dragon, he'll just turn his head around and roast you or bite you in half. Mm. And we did see some biting in half. Indeed. He says, so it takes something more than physical force. It takes a kind of psychic bond. And the precise nature of that bond is something that I'm still exploring in the world of ice and fire. So... As of the giving this interview, which is about three years ago, I don't think that he's fully come up with the necessary rules for dragon magic. But I think in this final episode, we do see something of a psychic connection, mm-hmm. you know, between Renera and her dragon when she's giving birth. Right. I like that he phrases it as like he's like exploring it, right? Like he's <laughs> he doesn't know. Like he has no idea. It's like it's like I mean you know, I mean you could just do it. <laughs> that's the magic. This is the thing that's holding the writing. <laughs> the magic of your imagination. Well, I mean, I think if if I was gonna be if I was to be a little snippy about it, I'd be like, "This is what's holding me up, isn't it, George? <laughs> you haven't figured this out yet. Yeah. yeah. Once you got this figured out, you're gonna finish these books." Yeah. But if I was going to be um, a little bit more generous, I would say I think this is probably what makes him stand apart as a writer. Like, you know, he really will give this a lot of thought, and I think that you appreciate it when oh yeah, the I'm, author I'm, has I'm being, given the the rules a bit of thought. You know, yeah, and I'm and I'm being I'm being cheeky, of course. I think it is. I, I like the idea because like you, when you start when you create something, you create a world, right? And like, there's a sense of of artistic. Um, uh, like almost voyeurism as you're in your own work, right? You get to yeah. a point where you're like, oh, this is sort of taking on a life of its own. And like you you think you have an idea and maybe and maybe the the art takes you in a different direction. I like to say often, you know, the art that art creates the artist, not the other way around. And so you have a situation where it's like, well, I've created this and like now what may have made sense and if I just sat in a room in a vacuum and said, I'm gonna create the rules of dragon ownership. Mm-hmm. And then you go, well, how does that work now that in this context of this world? And is that even the story I want to tell anymore? You know, so that's, I think, I think that's, I think actually the way he puts it is, is, is a great way to put it. Okay. So I like this and this got me thinking, well, if he's still developing these rules, I'm just going to go with like what I know about the dragons in his world, what I've seen on screen. And I'm going to come up with my own rules for my own headcanon. So I'd, I'd like to run so, those. So if you're things. listening, if you're listening, George, uh, you yeah. know, we'll, we'll, we'll do the heavy lifting for you. Here come your rules for Just magic. Just in case and this dragons. was the only thing that was holding you back from Winds of Winter. Right. I think He's I've going got it. Combing through podcasts, yep. going through everything. That's and right. eventually, after after listening to our Teen Wolf 2 uh, review, he says, oh, I wonder if they have any other podcasts. <laughs> Sure. Okay. This is Anthony's rule about dragons number one. Dragons are beasts of war and conquest. I think that that is very well established in this world. Um, these are creatures that, you know, they're not pets. They're, they're, they're basically, they're, they're fire made flesh. They're there for war. 
So they're beasts of war. And, I, you know, this is one of those times where it's like, can you ever really root for a Targaryen who's bonded with a dragon? Because let's imagine a guy that's just carrying around a nuclear bomb. Like, are you really ever going to root for that person? So you're saying that uh, these are one-track yes. animals, right. that they cannot be tamed, that there's no such thing as they can breed them down. I think that they... Or you have I teacup think... dragons. Can you have a teacup dragon that you carry around in a purse? I think that you might. However, that teacup dragon is absolutely going to Dracarys a cat at some point. And you can't just shrug Maybe. your shoulders. You can't just say, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was going to happen. You knew it was going to happen. That's what dragons do. They dragon you. Can't you get a teacup dragon to just be there to Dracarys your your stogie? Nope. And that brings us to rule number two. <laughs> Maybe you want a little creme brulee. <laughs> this brings us to rule number two. All right. So I don't think that there's a, a taming part of this. I think that there's a bonding part of this. So this is Anthony's rule about dragons number two. If you are bonded to a dragon... The more warlike your command, the more likely the dragon will obey. Mm. The less warlike the command, your dragon might obey and he might not. Gotcha. So, so like roll over. Yeah, he might not dead. do it. He not, might do not it. Not he super may interested. Not. You're not super yeah. interested. So, I mean, it could be like you know, you want him to do a loop de loo, and he's like, yeah, I'll do that. That's, uh, but or he might feel like. Yeah, not today. I don't feel <laughs> or, like it. So it, it might be like, yeah, I'll do the loop-de-loop if it helps this battle. Yeah, right. Right. So, yeah. So rule number one, these are creatures of war, right? They're, they're like, they're made for one thing. Number two, because they're creatures of war, you can bond with it. And, and the dragon may obey your will, but you're more likely to get the dragon to obey if you are commanding it toward battle aggression. Uh, that's my rule number two. Okay. All right. So this is uh, rule number three. This is Anthony's rule about dragons. Number three, a psychic link with a dragon makes the writer more violent. Oh. The stronger the link, the more warlike the writer becomes. So sort of a, that becomes symbiotic, right? So like, hey, yeah. the dragon wants to be used for war. It's going to be more inclined yeah. to follow uh, instructions of of war, yep. and you will also be more inclined to give it. You'll give it what it's asking yes. for. And I think that this this is it's crucial to make the distinction between bonding and taming here. Mm-hmm. So if you tame if you tame a dog, the dog will now view you as the alpha or whatever, and want to please you or something like that. Mm-hmm. When you bond with a dragon, I think it's more like, now you have my feelings and I have your feelings, but we are now both kind of creatures for war at this point. And I think that this might explain why the most dragony guy in the whole show, Damon, is also a very violent character. Mm-hmm. And why Viserys, who is sort of always dragon dubious, uh, becomes the king of peace, right? Okay. And I think it might also explain some of Danny's turn in the leader part. Oh, of interesting. I like that. I like that. I think it also, to some degree, explains uh, why Elliot um, feels drunk when E.T. is drinking a beer at home. Because <laughs> Are we tracking? Is that right? E.T.'s a, a, a creature of addiction? Is that what E.T.'s the villain. 
<laughs> very good. I like it. So those are my three rules, and I'm just I, I would like to, I'd like you to kind of give them the once over. Do these strike you as plausible? I mean, yeah, sure, right. I mean, so that's when you when you have the the final sequence uh, where Vagar does what what Vagar does. I mean, like maybe that's like ah, I'm gonna call an audible here because uh, this is you you're 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 playing around, mm-hmm. and that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to taunt. I'm here to chomp. Yeah. We you win. you we commanded win me to chase this this kid. Mm-hmm. I'm all about that. I'm all about doing high wire flying battles. I'm a dragon. That's what I like to do. Yeah, not not to tease. Yeah, no. And then of course he says no. Like both, of the, in fact, both of the dragons disobey. Right. Right. So the dragons decide that they're going to do dragonish things high above the clouds. They don't know how to pull back. I mean, that, right. it, and it's not just that they don't know how to pull back. It's that that command wasn't warlike. You know, once I go to battle, I'm in battle. Uh, you know, and I, I think that there's yeah, it something almost to be doesn't. There. It almost doesn't compute at all to sit there and say, "Well, no, now, now, do you're asking now to to deny instinct? Mm-hmm. You, you can only you can only harness instinct. You can't uh, right. uh, remove it, right? That's, yeah, and I'm saying that the the first instinct of the dragon is to attack. And so, if you like, if you ask a, if you ask a beast of any kind to like do what their natural instinct is to do, they're probably going to want it. They're more inclined to do that thing, right? Right, right. So I guess the other thing is that the other way that you can look at this, like when you're of- when you're dealing with Tony Danza, right? Like so, when you're dealing with Tony Danza, and you want him to act, but his instinct is to tap dance, right? And so you have to find a way to incorporate tap dancing into the acting because that's what he's gonna want to do, and he's if, gonna if be. You like, don't know that as a director going in, then why are you working with Tony Danza? Right, and and that's what was so genius about Who's the Boss? Because yeah, no, he did not tap dance in every episode, but every single episode has a tap dancing scene that they edited out because that's how you get him to do what he does. You have to let him tap his way through it. There, and if so, if you look at some episodes, uh, there are like moments where you can see the edit where like he's a little sweatier in the scene than he should have been in the scene previous. That's because he just tapped. So. There's a question between is the writer the boss or is the dragon the boss? And I think that's the right question to ask. We should be asking who's the boss in this. Yeah. Well, and that's really, I mean, I don't know if the show, we we were at the premiere. So a lot of our friends uh, and and listeners don't know this, but they really said that uh, season one is almost a shot for shot remake of the first uh, season of Who's the Boss? (laughs) Renera's Angela. Is that what's happening? (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, th- those are my rules, and I think that um, you know, keep keep an eye. We'll we'll see if these rules pan out. I mean, I'm not married to them, but I do think that they do explain a little bit of like Damon's behavior. They do explain a little bit, and they might explain Danny's behavior. I'm not I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, no, I I, I like how that um that sort of ties that together, right? Yeah. I mean, if it, it does sort of help. Especially if people were like not really sure about the like, well, why the turn, right? And it's like, well, it, if there's this, is it? It suggests it's more than just like, oh, it's in their blood, right? Like it actually take the magic in this right. case actually creates uh, a, a more logical explanation. Yeah, and I think that they like the last the latter seasons they were really learning leaning into like, hey, you know, it's a kind of a coin flip with these Targaryens. And what I'm saying is maybe it's not a coin flip. Maybe you can track who is warlike with who's mm. bonding to a dragon. I mean, look at Aemond. Aemond 
bonds with Vagar, the oldest and baddest dragon there is, and immediately he gets off the dragon and he goes and picks a fight with his cousins. Yeah, that's true. So then it'll be interesting, too, to find out, like, how many dragons can you bond with, right? Because I think that's what we're yeah. seeing uh, with Damon is he's got, yeah. he's got a bunch of dragons. Sure. Like, like, does that does that give you the ability? Like, so that so that would create a situation now where if we follow your rules, like, is he now is he able to bond with multiple dragons in a way that's sufficient? Or is that like, does it become even less control because you can't have like a full bond mm-hmm. if it's multiple dragons? Or does it go the other way and say, look, if you're if you're sort of absorbing that warlike tendency, now you've added more dragons to the mix. Does that make you less of maybe maybe start, start stripping away any of your, uh, you know, peaceful mm-hmm. or even compassionate, uh, you know, abilities because you're you're now just you become more of a creature of war. And I think that there's a I mean, I don't think this is perfect. I think that like Renice would be an example of someone who. She seems to be cold and calculating and thinking about the long term like she does not seem warlike to me she's she's bonded with a dragon and she's not very warlike so i mean she does kill you know 200 or so commoners with her dragon on one which feels which feels like a war thing it's a little bit warlike for sure i mean she's a mass murderer there's you know there's no doubt about (laughs) yeah yeah and that's and that's that tends to be a thing that happens in war. Okay. <laughs> anyway, she does seem like someone who who can pull a punch if she wants to. Well, but keep in mind, like, but again, like we just talked about, it's like if the if the command is don't attack because that's not the best strategy mm. for this particular right. battle. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's still coming from a place of war, right? It's coming yeah. from a place of violence, but it's just, it's more calculated. Yeah, Whereas and then she the- said, I think she said in the next episode, she said, yeah, there's going to be a war. There's no doubt there's going to be a war. Mm-hmm. The, the question is, is it my war to start? So Right, and whereas, whereas Eamon's command to stop was not like, stop because we're going to go fight another day. It was just like, well, I don't have any intention of doing this. Yeah, I don't really want this kid dead. Anyway, that, that's what I got. That's all I got for you. Well, that's exciting. That's a very exciting thing to think about. I think so, too. And I feel like I ought to go watch a couple episodes of Who's the Boss just to. Yeah, just to see how it all. Because, I mean, well, I wouldn't don't watch too far. <laughs> I do want to see if Tony Danza plays by these rules or not. <laughs> right. Well, that's the trick, right? I mean, like he's he, he's a bit of a dragon himself. <laughs> 